transition, and let me remind you again, that's for two reasons. One, because we find ourselves as a church in a season of transition, and two, because we find ourselves as a church in a world of transition. And so these are things that we're always facing, and maybe more so in the last few years than ever before. It just feels like if we were a deck of cards, we are in a reshuffling, right, before the next hand is dealt. And so we wanted to take some time and use Scripture to reflect on what God's doing in seasons like this and how to receive everything he has for us. And with that in mind, I'm going to ask you this morning to turn to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. My goal for this series was to make encountering transition as simple as catching fire. What I mean is, we all know that if we catch fire, we should stop, drop, and roll. And what I would suggest is, in times of transition, there's three steps. We need to look up, we need to open up our hands, and we need to lean in. And so, we saw our first week the reality that in all the major transitions that are recorded for us in the New Testament, whether it's a change of leadership like Moses to Joshua uh, or, or a change from being in the promised land to being in exile or entering into the promised land from the wilderness, all of these places, the Bible takes the time to remind us that God is with us, okay? That's look up. When you see the things around you, remember that God is on the throne, that he hasn't vacated the premises, that he still has a plan, that he's just as good as he always was. That is the first place we begin because it settles all the anxiety and it recalibrates us to go, instead of God, where are you? God, what are you doing right now? Okay. And that leads us to step two, which is to open hands. And so we saw last week that although God is consistent, In his presence and in his character, he likes to do new things. And because we are resistant to change, we would prefer old things. And so open hands means getting into a posture where you say, God, I'm grateful for the things that you've done, but in this changing season, what do you want to do now? God, I'm grateful for the people who have stepped up in the past years, but now is it me that you're calling to step up? God, I'm grateful for all that you've done that is precious to me. Give me new things to find precious that reflect your character and your goodness. And then lastly, lean in. And I'll start with just a really basic illustration. One of the ways we talk about transition is being on the fence right? And that's a really simple transition. That's a decision transition. I don't know if I'm going to go this way or that way, okay? And a time of transition always has that place. It's it's like a leap between two parallel boats. There's a moment, just a moment, where you're not in either boat. You're just jumping between them, which is probably not advised. Uh, But nonetheless, that's how transitions are. There's There's a point where you're neither past nor future. You're just hung in the balances between. And I just want to point out this morning that that's a no man's land place. It's a place where nothing is. It's just like sitting on a fence. You are neither here nor there. You're definitely not enjoying a barbecue. A fence is not a good place to hang out. It's just an in-between space, okay? And so my last exhortation this morning is, is to lean in to the new season, 
And I can't think of a better place to ponder that than Jeremiah 29. So let me set the stage. Okay, at this point, after literally hundreds of years of warnings, God has finally done what he warned Israel would do if they did not repent. And he has started moving them out of the land. They're being conquered by the Babylonians. And at this very moment in Jeremiah 29, most of Israel has been exiled. And there's a handful, just a little remnant, holding down the fort in Jerusalem. And in fact, on both sides, those in Jerusalem and those in Babylon had this perception that the ones in Babylon were the bad kids. And the ones who remained were the righteous kids that God was pleased with and was going to continue to preserve. And so just a few chapters before this, Jeremiah sees a vision of two baskets of figs. One that is beautiful and ripe and you would pay top dollar for, and another that's just gone to seed. It's totally rotten. And amazingly, he says, in God's view, the exiles are the beautifully ripe ones. You are the ones that God has a plan and a purpose for. The ones still in Jerusalem that everybody thinks are the remaining righteous, the worst is yet to come. Okay, it's intense. But there's a counter-prophet who stands up in Babylon and says, no, 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 no. Here's what God's going to do. He's just done this so that he can flex his arm and bring us back into the land with great power and victory. So don't even unpack your bags. All of you who are setting into Babylon, be ready to go. This is no different than when God opened the Red Sea, and yeah, Babylon came in, and then he just closed the water on top of them. This is all for his glory. Just hang on. God is going to set this right. So Jeremiah, who's still back in Jerusalem, writes a letter to those in Babylonians to speak for God and tell them how they should view this transition. And let's remember again, this is a big transition. These are a people who have been literally ransacked, plundered, chained, and carried out of their land to be, at best, second-class citizens as conquered individuals in Babylon. This is the transition. Okay. And so notice what it says here in verse 6. Uh, uh, notice what it says here in verse 1 of chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and prophets and all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was set by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. 
I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Let's pray. God, our circumstances are very different, and it would be foolish for us to identify too much with the people of Israel here who are experiencing your judgment and simultaneously experiencing the wicked uh, oppression that comes with war. They're functioning here as refugees who have lost literally everything. And yet, there is a principle here for us this morning, and so I pray that you'd help us to connect the dots and recognize, as we've done every work that, week, that this is not just your word through Jeremiah to the exiles living in Babylon, but your word for us today. We pray that you'd help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed near the end there a verse that many people identify as being their verse, right? A beautiful, encouraging promise where God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your good, for a future, and a hope. Okay. Maybe you grew up like I did in a big Baptist church and you know those, those words as lyrics of a song that we sing in church. It is good news and it is positive, but often we strip it from its context and don't hear it in its setting. What he says is, here is the plan. In 70 years, I'm going to bring Israel back. Okay. Now just reflect for most of you this morning, what is the likelihood you're going to see the fulfillment of a promise if it was given today in 70 years? He is talking here about his plans for Israel not being over, and that is incredibly good news. But for these folks, that promise will be fulfilled for their children at best. Okay? And so God is in control. He has a plan here, and I want you to notice he's basically saying, this is not a weekend getaway to Babylon. This is the rest of your lives. Okay? And so what he's trying to get them to do is get off the fence and step into this new season. But it's incredible, isn't it? Why, did, why are they here? Why is Israel being settled in Babylon? Because of their infidelity to God. This is an act of judgment. And yet God's heart for these people he's judged is one of goodness and favor. He's doing this with their best interest in mind. He is still involved. And on top of that, he still has a mission for them. Sometimes we don't think about this, but Israel was not just the recipient of God's promises. They were a kingdom of priests. They had a job to do. And you would think that being sent to Babylon was a pink slip. You're fired. And he says, no, 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 no. I have a mission for you right here in Babylon. I am not finished with you yet. I'm not finished with the nation of Israel, and I'm not finished with you. This is different, isn't it, than those who died in the wilderness as Moses and the people wandered for 40 years waiting for people to die in the wilderness, right? He says, no, I've got a work for you to do. There's three things I want to draw your attention to that are all bound up in this idea of leaning in. And the first is really just a review. Notice again what it says um, in verse 1 there. 
These are the words of the letter that sent Jeremiah the pro- or that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people notice this whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay. Who is the subject of that last sentence? Okay. The people of Israel have been taken by Nebuchadnezzar and settled in Babylon. Okay. In other words, if we ask the question, who did this to Israel? Nebuchadnezzar did. He has conquered Israel. He has broken through their defenses. He, through his generals, has ensnared and enchained and gathered these people, and he has brought them to Babylon. But notice the first thing in the letter that Jeremiah writes in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Do you hear the repeat of the language there? In verse 1, it's whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And in verse 4, it's whom I, the living God, have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Do you think a point is being made here? Okay. Basically, God is saying, this is not something that some foreign king just did while I wasn't paying attention. This is me. Okay. In fact, he, uh, Isaiah, one of the uh, partner prophets of Jeremiah, puts it this way. He says, Assyria and Babylon, those are just the tools in the hands of me. He says, this is how I'm bringing about my will. This is my punishment on you as people. He is the actor here. Okay. But this is the thing that we have to recognize this morning. That when we enter into new seasons, and again, New season sounds positive, doesn't it? Makes us think of spring. But sometimes a new season is winter, okay? Sometimes a new season is exile. Sometimes a a new season is, you know, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria, okay? But it's still God's season. He still has a plan, as we've already talked about. He's still working. And so even when transitions are dark and dangerous, God is at work. And we have to begin there because the rest of this letter makes no sense if that's not the case. If God is indifferent to Israel, if God uh, was defeated by the gods of Babylon, then the rest of this letter doesn't make sense. How can God be about their welfare and their good if he wasn't paying attention, if he was caught off guard, if he has given up on them and has surrendered them to the elements? And God says, no, this is my hand, and it's a hand of discipline, but it's for your good. This is my hand, and this new season, which is filled with difficulty and confusion. How much practice does Israel have living as God's people outside the land of Israel? None. They've never done it before. And as I told you last, last week, Israel innovates. And so we don't have a temple, so we start synagogues right? They figure out what it's like to be a holy people in the midst of Gentiles because they've never done it before. It's a new season, but it is based on the fact that God still is, that God still cares, that God's still working, and that God is still sending out, commissioning, commanding Israel to do something, okay? And so we have to begin there. God is on the move. Even in hard seasons, God is still working, Now, that doesn't make God the instrument of evil. In fact, after all of this is said and done, 
God actually brings judgment on Babylon and Assyria. And one of the reasons he does is because I wanted to bring judgment and you brought tyranny. So he uses this. He allows these things and he works in them. And you want the biggest illustration of this in the entire scriptures? It's the death of Jesus Christ himself. The death of Jesus Christ is something that humans perpetuated on the God who loves them. And yet God used it to bring about the possibility of salvation. God, in the words of Johnny Erickson Tata, uses the things he hates to accomplish the things he loves, which is ultimately just a way of saying that God is in control. He's sovereign. He was sovereign for Israel in this period. He's sovereign in our circumstances now. And whatever the fate of our family or of our city or of our church or of our nation is, God does not change. And as he says here, I have a plan. And the plan is for your welfare. It's a plan of hope. Okay. But what's the second thing he says here? First, he says, remember that God is still here. Remember that God is still working. Remember that this only came about because God allowed it and he has a plan here. And then notice what he says next. He says, verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, at base level, like I said, the, the most basic idea that Jeremiah is trying to convey is you're going to be here a while. Right? That's why he goes on and he doesn't just say build houses and live in them and plant gardens, which might be required for a couple of years. He says, find spouses for your children, marry and have kids. Right? He's, he's looking generationally. But also, can you see with me here that there's a recognition that you should go about your life? He's basically saying it's possible to flourish in Babylon. And again, I know we probably haven't experienced these circumstances, but you've been in this place in life where you're like, well, there's no good that can come out of this next season, so I'm just going to grit my teeth and hold on. Or, here's a low-grade version of it that I see all, all the time, there's so much transition going around, there's so much change, it's easier just not to invest. I'm just going to keep my go bag packed, I'm not going to get to know anyone. I'm not going to volunteer for anything. I'm not going to get involved because this season, I don't know what's going to happen. Okay. If I have one regret for the way that I navigated personally in whatever roles of leadership I had for my family, for this church, one regret about the season we went through in COVID, it was not owning this lesson. It was seeing COVID as an interruption and thinking it's almost over, we're just going to write it out, so we're just going to press pause. I believe that God had flourishing for us in that insane season, but I forgot that God was in control. And I imagine a lot of you can resonate with that because we started to all learn that lesson later on, didn't we? Because you cannot go on pause for a year and a half. And we kept going just another week just another two weeks, and pretty soon there's months and months behind us, and we go, wait a minute, no is not life. Safe is life, we, but we have to do something in the hand that we've been dealt. God is here. He's in control. That's the God of transition. Build houses. Plant gardens. Go about your business. Live 
life. This is a reference to a title merely and not the content of the book because I haven't actually had a chance to read it yet. Do you remember the title of one of the classic books from the 20th century, Love in the Time of Cholera? What's significant about that name? Even in the time of cholera, there is love. Even for exiles in Babylon, there is life. Okay. Now I want to make a clarification here. What is the difference between this and the often stated and condemned in Scripture, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? It sounds a little bit similar. Live your life! Carpe diem! But the basis, the premises of that, is that there is no hope in the future, and therefore you might as well get everything you can right now. But the premise of this is different. It's not live your life because this is all there is, There's a hope and a future, verse 11. We already saw that. But more importantly, we go about living our life. We love our life. We assume that God is working now because he is. And so it's not that this world is all we have. It's that even this world is infused with the glory and goodness of God. Even this fallen, broken, threatening world is infused with the goodness of God. And so even if you find yourself exiled in Babylon, unpack your bags, build a house, start a family. In fact, let me just deal with that one specifically because something that I hear very often is, how can I bring kids into a world like this? And I sympathize, I really do. And there is always, always the need to be wise in our choices and that includes choices for our family or potential family. But Scripture maintains that children are a blessing. They're a way to bring good into the world. And they're always worth it. And if you don't understand this, just meet some of the families who have children with severe Down syndrome or these other conditions and ask them if they could choose between their life what they would choose to have this child. It's joy. It's not that it's not difficult. And let me remind you, in the best of environments, children are difficult. Cain and Abel were born just outside of the Garden of Eden, and it was a mess, okay? But there's a TV series on Amazon called Electric Dreams that's um, all from the short stories of Philip K. Dick, one of my favorite sci-fi authors. And there's, there's an episode where a ticket taker for the train system in the United Kingdom, um, he has a lady buy a ticket for a station that doesn't exist. And he's, he's been working there for years. He's surprised to find it listed in the machine. He wonders if there's a new spot. And then he goes looking for it and he can't find it. He goes home. And his home life is hard. His oldest child, who is in his 20s, has severe mental issues and is regularly violent. And so when he gets home that day, the police sirens are sitting right outside. His wife has been endangered by his son. And it just cuts off. He goes to work the next day and the same lady comes and buys another ticket. And so this time, he asks somebody to man the station and he follows her. And he gets to a part on the train between stations where the train comes to a stop. There's no station there. 
and they climb out and walk through a field to this beautiful little city. And it is a utopia. There's a sweet little diner, 1950s style, and the food is amazing. Everybody is happy. The streets are clean and all these things. And he cannot wrap his head about uh, what he's just found. But he knows that he's found something the way life is supposed to be. And then he goes home that night, and his son is gone. And not just his son is gone like he left the house. It's as if he never existed. His wife doesn't remember his son. There's no photos of him in the place. Suddenly, this incredibly difficult part of his life is just gone. And so he heads back to the town, and he finds the mayor of the city, and he says, where is my son? And she goes, you tasted what life can be here. And so I just brought it into your house. Isn't that what you want? He said, no, I want my son. And she says, how, how could you want that? Why would you put yourself through that? Why would you put your family in danger? And he said, because I love him. Build houses. Plant gardens. Have kids. Even if it's an act of defiance. Even if it's an act of hope. Even if it is just this, recognizing that, as Job said, in the midst of all of his suffering, I believe I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living here. Not just there, but here. Settle in. and Build life. Listen, a lot of you have blown into Seattle, and some of you are pretty sure that you're just going to blow right out in a couple of years. And there's a tension to feel like you're just passing through, that this is just a layover in the Dallas airport on the way to your true destination. So it's not a home, it's not even a hotel, it's just an airport. But God is here. God has things for you in this season. You know, one of the ways that transitions are hard is relationally. And not just when we move away, but when relationships fall apart. And what do we do sometimes when relationships get hard? What do we do sometimes when we've just been burned over and over and over again? We don't unpack the bags of our heart anymore. Right? We go, I'm just, I'm just not going to get that invested in other people. It just costs too much. It's, it's too dangerous. Build houses. Plant gardens. Start families. I was reflecting on some particularly difficult relationships in my own life last night. And now that I've been a few years removed from those difficulties, I was able to give thanks to God for those people and for the goodness that I experienced in them. And this is the problem, isn't it? We're black and white people. We have two categories, good and bad, yes and no, black and right, righteous and evil. And so when somebody crosses that line, we're like, you're a monster. You're dead to me. But the worst act of evil will never erase the reality of goodness. And the incredible thing is that God is so sovereign and his plan is so perfect and what he's accomplished in Jesus Christ is so great that one day the goodness will wipe out all the evil. Like Samwise Gamgee asks in Lord of the Rings, if you're alive, does this mean that all sad things will one day be untrue? Yes. So build houses. Plant gardens. Start families. But that's not all. 
as I said, he gives here a commission to these people. He doesn't just say, get what you can. He doesn't just say, flee to the wilderness and hold on. He doesn't say, start another colony and maybe this time there will be no sin in the camp, no evil in the midst, and we can have our own utopia. He doesn't say, pull out of the evil, escape in the middle of the night. He says, I've sent you there as missionaries, as representatives of light to darkness. Notice what he says here, verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Can you hear that for what it is this morning? Who are their neighbors? Their neighbors are the soldiers that plunder their houses, that put them in chains, that march them all the way to Babylon, that are not interested in their life or their survival. They are the ones that are probably unjustly and oppressively employing them for beneath minimum wage. These are their neighbors. And he says, seek the welfare of the city. You know what that word for welfare is in Hebrew? It's shalom. It is the biggest and most expansive Hebrew word for complete wholeness and perfection. Now, is Babylon going to become a whole place, a perfect place? One day. Are they going to see it in the 70 years? Not at all. And still, he says, seek the welfare of the city. He says, not only to seek the welfare, but to pray for this city. And, and notice who they're to pray to. He says here in verse uh, 7, Seek the welfare of the city I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find welfare. Here's the reason why Christian escapism never works. This pull out of society, remove yourself from culture. One is... You are society. You are culture. You will take it with you. Okay? The men who fled to the wilderness to flee their own lust in the desert got thousands of miles away from women and never got away from their own lust. Okay? And at the same time, doing so also doesn't recognize that the welfare of the city is your welfare. That the welfare of society, you are not the hole in the donut of Seattle. You may be a minority, you may be unwanted, but this is your city, this is your home, this is where you live. And so there's a baseline idea here of seek the welfare of the city because in your welfare or in its welfare you'll find your own welfare, which is really just a call back to the book of Genesis. When God says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion, what he clearly envisions is a flourishing society. And so you can't just wash your hands. You can't just give up on the city of Seattle. You can't just step out and excuse yourself from participation or try and keep your hands clean and mistake not being engaged with holiness. Seek the welfare of the city. And again, Remember who he's talking about when he says the city. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. This is, this is a guy who in the book of Daniel is so into himself that he builds a giant statue so everybody bows down and worships it and anybody who doesn't, he throws into the fire. He says, pray for Nebuchadnezzar. Seek his welfare. And do you see it in Daniel? Yeah. The employees 
are the ones who almost go into the fire. They refuse to worship Nebuchadnezzar, but they don't quit their jobs. And they seek his welfare consistently in the book. God has given our church a gift in this church building. Can you just reflect on the fact that we're a relatively small church with not a lot of high rollers with big endowments and we own property in Capitol Hill? That's only by God's grace. It's only by the incredible doors that God opened. It's, it's only because he worked on the hearts of the German congregation to make this work for us. And let me tell you, as somebody who talked with them for eight years, it was work that had to be done. They told me the first year we were here, we're going to sell to a developer, get our top dollar. That's not what happened. And here we are, in the heart of the city. And some of you live in this neighborhood, and some of you commute in. But for all of us, you have been called to seek the welfare of Capitol Hill. Maybe you won't be here in two years. Maybe you won't be here in two months. But while you are here, unpack your bags and seek the welfare of Capitol Hill. You see, the challenge again in transition is we can get stuck in this place where we're so reluctant to move out of the last season that we're, we're on the fence because it's as close as we can get to what was, but it's not what was. It's gone. And the message here is to lean into this new season, to remember that God didn't just do something past tense, but is doing something present tense, to remember that there is goodness for you in the land of living in this new season and to not just open your hands and say God do whatever you want but to open your arms and receive the things that he wants to do here and now as well as to be not just blessed in Babylon but be a blessing in Babylon to prayerfully consider how you can love your neighbors and spread shalom and work towards flourishing not because we will accomplish it. I think we're at another season where we're starting to recognize how little we can really change, how small we actually are, how complicated the problems we're facing as human beings are. But the reason we seek the flourishing of the city is not because if we just put enough elbow grease and enough thought, or if people just give enough money, or if we just vote the right way that we can bring about the kingdom of God, we can't. But that kingdom will come. And we do it as an expression of hope in that kingdom and as a foretaste of it, as Pastor Javon told us a few weeks ago. So seek the welfare of the city. Pray for your neighbors. Love your neighbors. Love your enemies. Assume that God has called you here, not just so that you can survive the big bad city, but so that you can participate in it as an agent of peace. Let's pray.